Welcome to The Last Supper Talking Art, a weekly podcast featuring artists, collectors and gallerists in Asia. Hello everyone, I'm your host Oscar Vernhuis, a Dutch Korean artist based on Lama Island in Hong Kong. In this episode, Yuri van der Liest talked about his group exhibition A Collection of Two Acts at Roshi Roshi Gallery in Wonchakan in Hong Kong that ends this year on the 16th of September 2022. This is an overview show of Yuri's private art collection of 42 artists from around the world. He explains the exhibition's concept of critical fabulation, we delve into his thoughts about collecting art, why he started collecting and how his acquisition has evolved over the years. Before I begin, I'd like to mention that the Last Supper podcast is supported by the Hong Kong Art Gallery Association, a member-based non-profit organization of established local and international art galleries in Hong Kong. I just picked you up from the ferry pier and we are recording at my place on Lama Island. Yuri, thanks for coming over and how are you today? Yeah, thank you, Oscar. It was great to meet you with the sun shining down on your island retreat. Yes, you brought some really nice, extremely nice weather over from uh, Hong Kong Island. Let's begin with yesterday, because that was your opening of a collection of two acts. I think this is your very first overview show of all the pieces that you have acquired in Hong Kong. Absolutely. I've lent pieces before and I've hung pieces in, um, I, once I hung a few pieces in a Saingpun coffee shop, but yesterday, wow. It, it's, it's just on another scale entirely and seeing, I, I have no idea of the numbers. I mean, the whole day was a blur for me, but it was just this community that over six, seven years I've kind of managed to engage with and kind of make connections to to various degrees and levels, whether they're artists, whether they're working for a gallery, whether they're other collectors, whether they're just personal friends. Amazing. I was at the opening yesterday afternoon and it was really busy despite the COVID restrictions. The amount of people was very encouraging. It really felt that people needed to connect and interact after so many months of COVID restrictions. But people are hungry for community, you know? They're hungry for culture. They just, they want connections so badly after these two years. Yuri, let's start today's conversation with your background. What can you share with me and how did he actually ended up here in Hong Kong? My kind of tongue-in-cheek answer is always by airplane. But um, let's let's go back a little further than that. I mean, I'm from Canada originally, uh, Nova Scotia, which is the east coast of Canada, and it's the the coast of Canada that not a lot of people tend to know. Um, I came to Asia originally. Oh my God, it's like 25 years ago now. I lived in Korea, and you have a, a Korean connection, of course, Oscar, um, for nine years. Um, I had a few years out. I lived in the states for a while. I bummed around India for a year at one point spend some time in Canada with my family, but I've been in Hong Kong for 12 years now. I think about a decade ago, and you mentioned that you've been here in Hong Kong for 12 years, you began collecting art in Asia. What motivated you and how did this interest in collecting art develop? I've always been a collector. And I mean, we're, we're in the process of writing a, a catalog slash book for the show that we're doing. And, and actually I had to write an essay for that and that caused a lot of introspection. And I, I go back first to my father. I mean, my father collected church organs. 
you know, the old reed organs, the pump organs that you'd have in country churches in Europe and North America. So I grew up around collecting, curating, caring for for a collection of that's historic, that's cultural, you know? And at the time, I mean, I was collecting comic books. At the end, I had about 2,000 comic books, and I had this kind of absolute fascination with anything that was sort of old, you know, anything that was sort of vintage that showed a different time, a different set of values, a different set of approaches to, to life and community and culture. These comic books from the, the 50s and 60s and 70s with the tanned brown paper, you know, and the advertisements for 50 cent x-ray specs that you could send away for. <laughs> So, you know, that that's a tough kind of collection to have once you come out into the world. You know, you can't lug around big, long boxes of comic books. So in Korea, I started collecting telephone cards. You know, this was the days before cell phones, and I kept in touch with my family by buying phone cards and using the public telephones. And in Korea, the phone cards, they had pictures of, like, the, the ancient palaces, the uh, royal jewelry, uh, great pieces of art from the history of Korean culture, birds and flowers and mountains. And, you know, I'd go down to the central post office on the weekends and there'd be these old guys, uh, mostly old men. They'd set up card tables and they'd have all the phone cards they collected. And you'd kind of talk with them and the bit of Korean I knew at the time. You'd use hand gestures and you'd trade cards to complete sets. It was amazing. So look, when I came to Hong Kong, you could almost say there was a bit of a, a vacuum for a collection at that time. <laughs> when I talk with people who have a passion for art, there are some who aren't very comfortable with the notion of collecting art. I wonder if you have had similar conversations, and if so, I'm really curious to find out what your take is on this. Yeah, and that's one of the areas I've been challenged in this process of doing this show. Um, I, I've been asked that question by some of the people involved. Look, whether it's collecting, whether it's amassing, whether it's hoarding, whether it's curating, whether it's archiving, use any term that you want to use, really. I mean, there are people who would consider themselves fine artists. There are people that would consider themselves illustrators. There are people that would consider themselves craftspeople. And you know, there's all these sort of artificial divisions that we can put on it. I mean, artists have a compulsion to create art. And I have a compulsion to go out and and find bits of myself mirrored back to me in art that I see. Poetic ways of representing the community and the people around me. You know, creations that that somehow solidify and capture you know, sometimes very deep, very compelling philosophical concepts and ideas. So use whatever adjective you want, whatever label you want. There is a drive in me to to bring together these this collection of, of these expressions. I understand you've been collecting collectibles your entire life. Do you still have your comic book and your telephone card collection? And another question I would like to add, what would happen if you were to lose the entire collection? The comic books, no. At a certain point, your parents wonder why there are six huge boxes of comic books in their basement and they destroy a little bit of your soul by getting rid of them. <laughs> I'd, I'd say there's sort of 
maybe 30 or 40 of the most sort of important, rare, or sought after comic books that I do still have stashed away somewhere. The phone cards, I still have every one of them. And yeah, for me, almost they are a strong connection to and representation of those nine years I spent in Korea. I mean, they are important to me. The art, I mean, look, I can't hang all the art that I have in my collection in my house, but there's usually at any given time 30 or 35 pieces, and I live with them, you know? I see them every day. Sometimes when I'm brushing my teeth, I kind of wander around and stop at one, and, you know, while the electric toothbrush times, I kind of look for different ways of considering them. So so they are very important to me if I lost them. I haven't really thought about that before. I mean, look, in the end, they're objects, right? It would would hurt me. It would wound me deeply, I think. Uh, What else can I say? The reason why I'm asking you this, Yuri, is that I'm really curious about your thoughts about the concept of value and how you attach value to an object. How strong is this relationship between your collection and the attachment you have to them? Because when I used to collect books, I would remember each purchase. I would make a kind of mind map that would help me to recall exactly when and where I purchased each single book. Although I've given away uh, my entire collection, so I don't physically have them anymore, I do still remember certain pages where I purchased them, and I can kind of visualize the cover and the interior of the shop or museum I bought them. And I can recall this without the physical book. What can you tell me about the attachment and value of your collection? Uh, The telephone cards and the comics are a little different that way. Because a telephone card collection quickly reaches 200, 300 pieces, you know. I would say maybe there's a dozen or 15 or so of the phone cards that, you know, um, at one point the founder of the Hyundai group, when the North Korean border was starting to become more porous, he took a herd of 500 cattle and walked them across the border to North Korea as a gift to the North Korean people. And they produced a limited edition of, I think, 500 phone cards with a picture of of him leading these cows north over the border. And I mean, I I remember that. It was an issue. It It was in the papers. It was on the news. It was something that in our little collecting community, we were all trying to get this card. But it's not like, you know, uh, pictures of the the varieties of birds in Korea or the types of flowers that bloom. It's a little harder to have that personal connection to something like that. It's a little more encyclopedic when you look at the phone cards. The art, on the other hand, and you ask about the idea of, of value, because the art is a very different decision. The phone cards are collected. I find them sitting in phone cards or I just buy them at the 7-Eleven to to phone my mom and dad, you know? The art is a much more considered process. And I think part of that comes from the financial aspect. It is a much larger financial commitment to acquire and bring a piece of art into your collection, into your home. Secondly, there's so much complexity of meaning. There's so much sort of philosophical and personal voice in a piece of art. You have to make a decision that you're willing to almost associate that with yourself, make it a part of your own statement, make it a part of your own voice to have that in your collection, you know? So it's very different. The art each does have a story. 
the phone cards less so. Last week when we met, we spoke about this subject and I mentioned that I have slowly detached myself from ownership of physical objects. You can still see a lot of items in my room, of course, but if I were to lose all my images, for example, that are saved on my iCloud, it wouldn't really bother me too much. Of course, I would be annoyed, um, but today I value the memory of the image that I have in my mind more than the actual object itself. What can you say about this as an art collector? So, but that's an interesting concept because, you know, another thing that I've thought about and I've talked with Chris Wan, our curator, um, John Batten, who's um, contributed an essay for the catalog that we're doing. You know, we, we've talked a lot about this idea of, of how a, a collection, we've got to keep using that word, we need, we need some word for it, you know, how it connects to identity. And the way that, you know, maybe the booksellers that you met buying your books or, you know, the people you had discussions with in coffee shops about something you had read the night before in an exciting new book that you got, you know, that's analogous to, you know, as I've engaged in the art world, the conversations I've had with, with gallerists, with other collectors, you know, going to visit artists in their studio, you know, what would be left even if the tangible art was gone would be those discussions, those interactions, you know, what I've learned from, from, from meeting these people, from talking to them about, you know, the materials that they use, the way that they think about the art that they create, or for a gallerist, the art that they decide to represent and bring out into the community, you know? And, and I think that that's an essential part of, of most collections, whether it's stamps, comic books, phone cards, or art, you know? People, people find not just an object that they are compelled by, but they find a community of people who, who find shared meaning, shared value, and, and build connections through those objects or ideas, you know? When you look at art, Yuri, and examine art, what are the properties you look at, or what typically draws your attention? There is the purely visual element. Obviously, you know, there's, there's the colors, there's, for lack of a better word, the graphic design element of art, um, the balance of shapes and forms, and that's essential. But then there's, there's so many other kind of, I don't know, pillars of approach that you can take, you know. One example, obviously, is the concept, the idea, you know. What, what is kind of the, the meditation that the artist is doing through those pieces? You know, we've come through three tumultuous and difficult years in Hong Kong. And the artists in this community have been processing those three years through times of unrest and then times of COVID through the art that they've been producing. And, you know, that's another element and another sort of access point to the art. Well, you just said it's quite fascinating. And you refer to the different pillars and approaches to art. Maybe to add to that is the subjectivity and the dichotomy of aesthetics and beauty. What's really fascinating about aesthetics and especially beauty is that it can be really pleasing to the eye and repulsive as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, I mean, I'm a movie lover and it's often the most kind of dark or disturbing movies that 
that plumb the deepest into who you are and make the strongest connection, you know? If you're in a movie theater and people are walking out because it's too intense, damn, that's a good movie. What types of movies or genre do you watch and what are the movies that inspire you? Oh, goodness. Um, it's kind of like like the way I think about art. I mean, it can be a romance. It can be a gangster film. It can be a, it can be a heist film. As long as it's true, as long as it's true to its own convictions, as long as it creates a world that is utterly true unto itself, I will absolutely engage and love that film. Uh, last night, I, I mean, coming back from the show, I mean, yesterday was just intense at, in, in a way I can barely describe the opening. So many people, so much emotion, you know? And I came home and I sat back on the couch and um, I rewatched the movie Tick, Tick, Boom which is actually a musical, and I don't often watch musicals. Andrew Garfield, I don't often watch Andrew Garfield films. But damn, this is a powerful film, Oscar, because it creates the world that this playwright lived in, and then everything that happens in the film is completely true to that world. Nothing falls out of place. Nothing seems calculated. You know, there's a holistic whole to the film and I don't know what you think of musicals but I highly recommend that one let's return to your show at Rossi and Rossi how did this idea of showing your collection started what can you tell me about this journey from ideation to implementation look props to Fabio Rossi and Rossi and Rossi Gallery. I mean, Fabio came to me probably more than a year ago. And I knew Fabio. I mean, I'd, I'd visited his gallery many times. Um, I've always I've always appreciated Rossi and Rossi so much because they're they're so unique in Hong Kong's gallery space in terms of what they present. I mean, whether it's Iranian, Pakistani, Tibetan, Nepali, or Kazakhstani artists, you know, you, you'd see things at Rossi and Rossi that, that you'd very rarely see anywhere else in Hong Kong. And Fabio came to me with this idea, and, and he just kind of asked me one day, you know, have you ever thought about showing your collection? And, and I've had, as I mentioned earlier, I've had opportunities before. I, I hung some pieces in a coffee shop once, um, there was a museum in Taipei that, that I lent a few pieces by Eric Falk, a Macanese artist, too, for a show. So I, I always had this idea that I, that I would like to. You know, I mean, this, this art has all been shown once in a gallery show when it became kind of available to the public. And then it's disappeared into my living room. Like, like why? Why am I the only one that gets to live with and experience these pieces, you know? Why did these artists only have this one fleeting opportunity for their work to, to connect with the community? So the minute Fabio mentioned it to me, I, I was intrigued and, and excited. And, it, and look, that's all it was for, for a little while. You know, I think a gallery probably generally tends to plan about a year in advance for their cycle of shows that are coming up. But um, I got to say... Five months ago or so, it started to get very real, you know, and slowly each month, the intensity of the work for the preparation grew and grew and grew. And let me tell you, first of all, I mean, 
the team at Rossi and Rossi, um, Charles, Ashley, Karen, uh, Ball, um, Jessica. I mean, oh my God, the work that this crew does to bring these shows to us is just unbelievable. It became lunches and coffees, particularly with Chris Wan, the curator, and and Charles, who was taking the lead um, in the gallery for this show. And it became a lot of talking about, you know, starting very abstract, like we're talking right now, about ideas of collecting, about connections and ideas that that associate with certain art that that I've acquired over the years. Um, it started at a certain point where Chris came in with a curatorial concept and started to connect that to my own ideas and thinking. And we really slowly evolved a fairly complex, I think, and fairly nuanced way of thinking about how we could present the collection. And, and that's, look, I'm in there, but, but that's Chris and that's Charles, you know? And, and it was... Fabio's initial vision of doing this show and then just allowing Chris and Charles and the rest of the crew at Rossi Rossi and me just giving us completely free hand, you know, trusting us, trusting the way that we approach and think about this art and this show to bring to life what was presented yesterday. Chris one, the curator of the show, introduced a concept of critical fabulation. What can you tell me about this concept of fabulation in your current exhibition? Yeah, so the concept of fabulation comes in with the idea. There's one point in the show uh, above a set of T-shirts that Feaston made for us. We're, we're both wearing the same T-shirt from the show today, I realize. We're both dealers since 1985. Um, where it says, you know, this is a real collector, this is a fictional collector. Or maybe it's the other way around. You know, this idea of fabulation you know, comes to the idea that, you know, what is the identity of the collector and what is the identity of the collection, you know? The, the show is broken down into two rooms. And the first room, the identity of the collection, um, in some ways is a very artificial, top-down, imposed concept of a collection. It's, it's something that a museum might do 20 years from now if they were looking back and were saying, you know, what was going on in emerging Hong Kong art around sort of 2016 to 2022, which is where most of the pieces come from. That room is, is quite brightly lit in a more institutional sense. All the art is chronologically presented. There are labels that have very regimented information on them, and they're all at exactly the same height. So there's a top-down imposed curatorial concept in that room. But then you continue on a journey, and, and the, actual, the actual journey through the gallery is, is through these small halls that Fabio has created around the outside edges. I mean, the design of the gallery itself, I think you could do a show on also. And you come into this second room, and the second room is a different identity of a collector and a collection. And it's a much more personally defined one. You know, in the second room, the light is automatically lower. It's, there's a sofa in the middle. Uh, it was going to be my sofa at a certain point, but my cats have destroyed my sofa to the point where you couldn't put it in the gallery. It has my coffee table out of my apartment sitting right there. And it, in, in that sense, it is almost the creation of kind of a warm personal home space where you have a more personally defined idea of a collection. 
the the connection between the work there. Some of them, the majority, are still Hong Kong, but there are works by artists from Thailand, from Britain, from from many other countries in that room. And what ties those together is the identity of of me as a collector. I have made very personal choices to put those works together in my personal space. So both of those are fabulations in Chris's way of approaching. You know, one is kind of a, a, a curatorial creation and one is a very personal creation. And then there's a hallway that connects the two and it's very interesting. And I'm really hoping that people that visit the show will really engage with this. Where Chris has created this idea of, you know, Oscar, you can go in and you can create a fabulation. You can go through the show and you can collect three works and write down on a sheet what are the three works you've chosen. And then there's a box where you can describe your curatorial concept. What links those three pieces of work for you? What is it about them? Is it a color palette? Is it a concept, idea, or emotion that you feel through them? Is it the year that they were created? Is it the fact that you visited all those places in Hong Kong? Yesterday's opening was really well attended, but have you been able to look at the fabulations that visitors wrote down? There were three or four of them that were done yesterday during the opening. So that was very interesting. Um, There was one which is Chris's, where he has created kind of a, a fairy tale or folk tales concept. And he's put together uh, Luke Ching Chin Wai's um, Festival of Hong Kong. Uh, I, 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 just a, wow, what a gorgeous piece. Um, I, I can't begin to describe the depths of conceptual and textural and, and material beauty of this piece. Uh, there's a painting by Zhao Zhao, the mainland Chinese um, artist um, from his Constellation series. And then he's chosen Florence Lamb, and we'll have to talk at some point about Florence Lamb's um, performance art piece to be part of his curation of folk tales. The idea of the fact that each of these artists has created, you know, a, a story of 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 resonance to community in those pieces. Someone else, uh, Charles, um, who of course was integral to the show, he chose three pieces that show Hong Kong scenes. And he was fairly simple and fairly literal in why he put it together. Like, look, he's visited each of those pieces. Each of those pieces really resonate for him. And he could put together a mini show of places Charles has visited. This is a group exhibition. And I just looked at the lists. And there are, in total, 42 artists So it's not possible to cover them all in this particular podcast. And I want to focus on a few artists. And maybe we can start with the performance of Florence and Juliana because the vast majority are objects and this one is not. So why was this included in the show? Community is an integral part of this collection for me. You know, the people that I've met, I mean... Look, first of all, you know, I'm not a big ticket collector. I'm not buying million dollar pieces at auctions, you know, but these galleries, when I walk in the door, they welcome me into their space and and they take the time to show me around and introduce me to the piece of art, you know. 
Um, I visit artists' studio and it, and it just humbles me how they open their space to me. You know, we're sitting beside your artworks here in, here in your studio. You know, the way they open this personal space to me. And, you know, performance art, I'm sure it has a long and, and rich history in Hong Kong, but somehow over the last two years, performance art has kind of had a renaissance in Hong Kong. And um, Florence and uh, her partner Juliana came together to form Per Platform. And Per Platform has been my first experience of performance art. And it just, it just astonished me, Oscar. It just, um, you know, you go into a small room. Uh, Thy Labs in, uh, in Sham Shui Po has been hosting some of the Per Platform uh, shows. And, and there might be 15, there might be 20, there might be 25 people gathered in a dark room. And then a performance artist comes in and performs something that on the one hand is almost completely mind-boggling. Like, you know, sometimes you're just like, you know, what is this? Where does this come from? But ultimately, they're revealing something so intimate so personal they're putting themselves out there so far on an edge and and exposing so much of themselves in front of these 15 or these 20 or these 25 people you know um sometimes it's more you know yesterday i don't know we might have had 45 or 50 people there while florence was was performing and you know it, it's ephemeral it happens in that moment and whether it was 10 people or whether it was 50 people they were the 10 or the 50 people in the entire world that was blessed to be there at that moment of creation, at that moment of sharing. It, 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 it just overwhelms me that I, you know, that, that, I can, that, that I can be one of the people that, that partook of that, you know? Um, it's 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 just it's so it's so beautiful, Oscar. It's so and 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 to bring Florence in yesterday to the show, like wow. I mean that 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 she would put so much of herself and and make it a part of this. I just, it's it overwhelms me. When I walked through your show yesterday and I looked at the pieces that were on display. I noticed that they were very similar in dimensions. And I think that this may have a practical reason. Mm. However, there is a real richness and diversity in the mediums and methods. Let me address that in two parts, actually, Oscar, because first of all, the mediums. I mean, craft is very important to me. Um, you know, I'm I'm not an artist and... I'm not a craftsperson, but I am always doing to some degree or another crafts. You know, I make one or two Japanese boxes a year that I'll kind of have as a project on the side. You know, I did um, I did bookbinding classes for many years in Hong Kong, and uh, wow, what an astonishingly complex old world practice that is. You know, um, I appreciate crafts so much, and I love talking to the artists about what materials they've used, how they've thought about the complexities and challenges of those materials, and, and how, it's, how it's kind of part of, of what they have created in the end. Because I think that those materials are inseparable from the, the complete expression of what they've created at the end. 
Now, the second thing that, that you mentioned is the size. Um, we're in Hong Kong, Oscar. Um, you know, you collected postage stamps. I live in a postage stamp, you know, um, and, and I'm lucky because my, my postage stamp is maybe 480 square feet and it's just me and my two cats. You know, many people in Hong Kong live with their whole family in 480 square feet or less than that, you know, and Hong Kong's, it's, it's a hard place to be an artist, you know, and I guarantee you that some of those pieces hanging in Rossi and Rossi Gallery right now were created in a 480 square foot apartment or less while the artist family milled around in the apartment. This is a small place. It's a hard place to be an artist. I think that the small pieces are a direct representation of that, the, the, the physical confines that people work in. So I don't know if this is true, but there is another observation I made. There are very few foreign artists, but the majority of them are local and Asian artists. Is that a fair impression of the exhibition? Absolutely. I would say probably 70%, 80% are, are local artists, yeah. Besides the practical reason that we are based here in Hong Kong, is there a deeper reason, a more platonic attraction, why the collection is primarily Hong Kong Asian? Yeah, look, that's... Well, first of all, I am in, I am in Hong Kong, so yeah, obviously that's, that's a consideration. I mean, when, when I started collecting... People will ask you kind of, oh, what do you collect? What's your theme? What do you focus on? And some people will collect, you know, female artists. Some people will collect old masters. Some people will collect sculpture. You know, and, and in the early days, I, I didn't really have a, a quote-unquote theme. You know, what connected work together was I had a gut response to it, you know. Um, but as I explored the art scene in Hong Kong more and more as I visited more and more galleries. Um, first of all, you know, you have the big global galleries here, you have the big auction houses, but there's this huge ecosystem of really local, really regional galleries that are, are run often by local people who, who have a real passion, you know, and they've gone out and they found like Fabio has have gone out and they found artists, whether from Hong Kong or other countries that they believe in, that they see something and that they connect with and that, that they feel an imperative to bring to the community. You know, so it was a lot of those, are, those galleries that I, was, that I was exploring and being welcomed into, and, and a lot of them were representing a lot of local Hong Kong artists. Now, as I went through that process and as I started to meet the artists, you know, I started to do studio visits and really, you know, I've been in Hong Kong for 12 years, but it's an adopted home. It, it became a part of how I learned more deeply about this place, how I, I built a sense of, of the community of Hong Kong, of, what, of what's important to the community that I've adopted as a home. What's, what, are the, what are the values? What are the challenges? What are the fears? What are the hopes? What are the dreams? What are the desires? Of, of the people that I live among, that, that are my neighbors, that are my community. I also like to talk about the evolution of your art collection. How have your preferences evolved from when you started almost a decade ago to the pieces you have acquired recently? 
I can see that on several levels. I mean, first of all, there is media. Um, I started with a classic Hong Kong photographer, Ho Fan. I became absolutely obsessed in 2012, and I would hunt the internet. I would call little photography shops in the U.S. or in Europe, hunting down these vintage prints. You know? Oh, really? Was that with Sarah Green of Blue Lotus Gallery? Because I interviewed her on this podcast as well. Can you still recall where you first saw Van Ho's work? It was at the Hotel Art Fair when it used to happen in the Mandarin Oriental, and I think this was 2011 or 2012. And Blue Lotus Gallery had one of the rooms, and they had a small 2006 silver gelatin print of the iconic Hong Kong photo- photograph, Approaching Shadow. And I saw that picture, and it never let go of me. To this day, it hasn't let go of me. You know,、uh, that's that was the start. Prints and editions are an amazing way for for people to be able to collect because no matter what your budget is, or no matter what your level of quote unquote sophistication of of knowledge of art is, you can go out and and there are、uh, so many prints that are accessible to you. That are actual, you know, real beautiful, unique art pieces. You know, done maybe in an okay, not unique, an edition of twenty five or so that that you can hang on your wall. You know, so so from there it went to a lot of print and a lot of、um, silkscreen works in particular. I would say three or four years ago, the next evolution came where it started to be works on canvas and more painting. Actually, came into the collection, and actually, not just painting, but、um, you know, Andrew Luck's napalm piece was styrofoam, and and wow, it's like the it's like the surface of an alien planet, or、um, Kate Aoyang's、uh, embroidery, you know.、Um, I I definitely started to get more comfortable being more exploratory in the types of mediums and types of expressions as I got more ensconced in this world and more comfortable with my own sort of my own taste or my own you know the discriminations I would make when I would look at art. I did notice walking through the exhibition. That there is an evolution from more graphic photographic work towards multidimensional and more complex acquisitions. That's also a process of more and more of my financial resources going to collecting.、Um, you know, as I as I got deeper and deeper into this world, and it, and it became a larger and larger part of my identity. You know,、um, several nights a week would be going either to gallery openings. Or or gallery events, you know, a, a weekend would would often be five or six galleries on a Saturday, sometimes more. A Sunday might be the rare gallery that's open on Sunday, or or studio visits. So, yeah, absolutely. It's it's interesting that you, as kind of a, an outsider, can see that progression so clearly. And I think part of that is because Chris. Has dug into the idea of the collection so much that that the way he's presented the work, you know, that's one of the aspects of fabulation. You know, that's one of the ways of creating 
a concept of the collection to show and share to the community. You've described in detail the pleasure you get from visiting galleries, talking with the gallerists, curators, artists, and other people who work behind the scenes. Have you considered acquiring art online? Because that is an entirely different experience. It's much more likely online to be a photograph, a print, or somehow another mechanically produced piece of art, I think. I think. And I, I can't be I can't be categorical in that response. But but I do think that the more material the nature of the art, the more engaging the the craft, you know, the more handmade and 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 deeply kind of considered pieces the more unique it is as an expression i think the more i need to have a direct connection to it because that first piece in 2012 you know i looked for so long for that fan ho because the one that sarah had at, at the hotel art fair had already been sold and i finally found it at a small photography vintage photography store in ohio in the u.s it was just bizarre. I remember calling them on Skype and and saying, "Hi, you've got this whole fan, this Hong Kong photographer." And and yeah, that that was one of those first you know, Hong Kong art purchases and it was it was online. Now, let's talk about the balance of artisanship and concept in the pieces that you have acquired. Looking at your collection, what can you tell me about the relevance and significance of artisanship and narrative? I think for the vast majority of pieces, there has to be both because the conceptual is is absolutely core. There needs to be, you know, the craft engages and intrigues and, and excites me, but there has to be a story, you know? In the absence of a story, I... I I'm going to have a challenge connecting to it. Let's stay on this subject a little bit longer and hear your thoughts on how you value craft and skill. Would you consider, Yuri, acquiring an abstract work that is less focused on its physicality and more on the craft of thinking, on the capacity and skill of creating a new idea and developing new perspectives? You've, you've hit me with a difficult one there, Oscar. Um, look, as much as you can talk about taste or understanding kind of evolving or developing or maturing, I would say I've definitely become more open to and more comfortable with including abstract art in the collection. There's a, there's a beautiful little Jauki print uh, one of the first abstract pieces that I acquired. Um, I think Andrew Luck's Horizon Scan is is a great example of something that has intense craft and materiality, and I think Andrew's work is typified by that. But but ultimately is 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 very abstract. There's Hank Willis Thomas, um, an American artist, who is a, a fascinating combination of the two because when you look at it you see an abstract kind of melding of of gold and red 
and you can tell that there's something underneath it, but it's not until you take a flash photograph that you see the figurative piece underneath that abstract layer. Um, you know, the figurative aspect for me comes in an intense appreciation for detail. I love a work where you're rewarded for taking a magnifying glass and, and really getting in close and finding those small bits, you know? Um, some artists, there's a, there's a Hungarian artist that I found on a trip to Budapest a few years ago, Gross Arnold, and he created this lexicon. He created this whole world and language of images for himself. And if you get into these etchings with a, with a magnifying glass, you would just be astonished at what you can find and what you can find repeated across the pieces that he created. So I'm starting to forget the question already, but um, there, there definitely is a bent to figurative art. But... Um, abstraction is not excluded when you were talking about a magnifying glass that reminds me of one piece there were many that stood out but one i recall from yesterday's opening it was i think a squarish wooden box with several very refined glass needles filled with dust i think it was metal dust i felt that this was a really good balance between abstraction of time and aesthetics of materials. I think this work was by Morgan. Can you speak more about this work? That's Morgan Wong. That is an astonishing series. It's called Time Needle. So when Morgan was doing a residency in the UK a few years ago, I think it was 2016, he purchased an iron bar that was the exact same height as he is and the exact same weight of his body. Now Morgan spends a certain amount of time every day that he can with an angle grinder, grinding at one corner of that iron bar. And one day he might have 20 minutes to sit, and I guess it's a meditation for him, grind that bar. And if it's 20 minutes, he collects the amount of metal dust that he has ground in that 20 minutes. And he puts it in a small container. He sends it to a glass artist in Seoul, actually, in Korea. I don't know if he's in Seoul, but in Korea. And the glass artist blows these beautiful time needles. They look like thermometers and puts the amount of metal dust from that day. One day might have a small amount of metal dust because he had 20 minutes. And one day might have a large amount because he had an hour and a half to sit grinding. You know, everything Morgan does is about time. It's about committing. You know, time is the most valuable thing that we have. And Morgan chooses, whether it's 20 minutes or an hour and a half of every day, to create that metal dust and to document that period of intense focus and commitment to one seemingly, arguably meaningless pursuit. It's a, oh, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous series. But then if you think about someone like Eric Falk, who's an artist I've been passionate about since very early in my days of collecting, you know, it's very figurative. It's ink on paper. Um, it's almost narrative in the way that it presents. But, you know, Eric researches so deeply and, you know, he deals a lot with concepts of migration. 
you know, he's fascinated by the, the age of exploration, particularly the Portuguese explorers coming out into Asia and setting up these trade routes, you know? I would say on the one hand, he's, he's highly figurative, but on the other hand, the, the, the conceptual depth of, of, of what Eric presents, the, the stories and, and, and kind of the ideas, interpretations or impressions of these histories and the imprints that they've left on Macau and on Hong Kong and on Taiwan where he, where he lives now, um, no, no less complex and deep than the ideas or the concepts that Morgan is presenting in his time needles. I know it's unfair to compare artists and their arts, but I'm going to do this to make a point. When I see your first photograph that you acquired by Van Ho and the two recent abstract pieces by Eric Fock and Morgan Wong that we just discussed, you have this extreme diversity in your collection and I can see how your convictions have become more sophisticated. Is that a fair description how your collection has evolved? Probably a higher degree of confidence on my part to, to engage with these pieces, you know. Um, art galleries are very intimidating for the vast majority of people in the community. And, you know, I've, I've, I've got no issues with walking into a gallery and, and, and starting to share immediately what I see in it and to pepper them with questions about you know, what, what they think about the piece, what they see in the piece, what the artist has said about the piece, you know. But then I walk down Hollywood Road and there's all these antique shops and those, those antique shops are, are hella intimidating for me, you know. So, so I, I, I would say it's probably just, an, you know, another factor is probably a higher degree of, of confidence in terms of going in and engaging probably with more challenging works. When I go to a gallery, typically, but not always, I ask the gallerist or the person that's in the space what they can tell me about the artist. Personally, this is my entry point to making sense of the work and trying to understand the context of the piece. How do you explore the art that is on display? I want to know about the materials. I do want to know about the process still, and I'm almost always going to ask about that. Um... You know, I know some people go into galleries and and the first thing they'll say is, well, what does it mean? And other people, the last thing in the world they want is for someone who works in a gallery to tell them a defined meaning for, for a piece of art. So, you know, what I'm trying to get at, regardless of what I'm regardless of what I'm asking, is I'm trying to get at the story. I'm trying to get at something that's richer than, you know, this is about the plight of these type of people who face this type of challenge, and that's what the piece means. I, I want to have a richer story because, you know, I love to meet the artist when I can, but maybe when I initially see a piece of work, maybe I haven't had a chance to meet the artist yet. So I'm, you know, and the gallery ideally has spent time talking with the artist, exploring with the artist, what their practice is, how they think about the art. You know, ideally the gallery has a long, in many cases, has a long relationship with the artist. So I'm, I'm trying 
I'm trying to get a richer understanding of kind of the fabric that, that this piece of art comes out of and how it fits into a narrative or a story, how it encapsulates a part of that narrative or story. When you reflect back on the exhibition, Yuri, did you achieve what you hoped for and how would you describe yesterday's experience? We've talked about the difficulty of space in Hong Kong, the expense of space. This is a non-commercial exhibit. Um, none of this work is for sale. These, these, these works are, are part of who I am. Um, Fabio is giving a very large space in a very modern Hong Kong building for two months to, to be able to share this, this work with the community. It, it didn't have to be this fully realized. It didn't have to be this nuanced. It didn't have to be this complex and engaging, but it's beautiful and it's wonderful that it is. And it's because the team, it's because, you know, Chris and, and Charles and, and Karen and Ashley and Ball and Fabio and, and Jessica, because they just gave themselves fully to this project and, and they didn't scrimp on anything everything is just done to such a high standard. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about craft in the last hour, hour and a half. There's craft in this show. I hope that it's, it's an opportunity for new people to, to engage with these artists and to think about this art and, and to think about Hong Kong art as a community, as a genre, and, and discover these artists and engage with them on this level. Thank you so much to Fabio and to the Rossi and Rossi crew. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. It's a beautiful thing. You have this fabulous exhibition, and my next logical question is, what's next for you? Is this a one-off project, or what are your plans after this exhibition? Look, the next milestone in this process, we are working on kind of a, a book catalog, and this is actually something we haven't touched on yet, Oscar, because, you know, one of the core one of the core goals for me in doing this with with fabio and with the with the gallery team was to bring the artists as much front and center as possible so each artist each hong kong artist has submitted writing about their work and if you go to the gallery there are folders there and look you can choose the way you engage some people might just want to go in and let the work wash over them visually as they wander the gallery But if you choose to, you could spend a couple of hours reading each piece of writing that the artist has submitted and then looking at the work and thinking about the work. Um, in the more personal space, if it's a Hong Kong artist, the Hong Kong artist has written about it. And if it's an international artist, I have written about kind of my relationship or thoughts about the work. So, so the next milestone is definitely this, this catalog, this book that I'm producing with the Rossi and Rossi team. I mean, um, Karen has just been doing an, an astonishing job laying it out, um, overseeing the translation, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, wow, this, this crew is just astonishing. So that's the next milestone. Um, I visit Canada. I see my family. I come back in September. And what's next? It's, it's a great question. Um, I, the, the works have been out in the community they don't need to go back out into the community again. I'm not going to exhaust like in the next months or, but, but I would like to have more opportunities to share certain works. You know, uh, like I said, a museum requested um, some pieces at one point and included them in a show. And I was really happy to be able to send them to Taiwan and share them with, with that audience. So if there are other opportunities, 
um, there are opportunities for the artists also to be shown. You know, the history of Hong Kong's art world, uh, you know, we've seen this flowering recently with Daigun opening with them, with M Plus opening, but we've got to remember historically this was a very commercially driven art scene. It was the galleries that drove it. So uh, a work would often hang and be publicly seen during the one month or six weeks or two months that a gallery had a show. And yes, the gallery believes in the art and believes in the artist and wants to bring that artist to the world. Often these are very strong personal relationships between a gallerist and an artist, um, particularly with the smaller local galleries that, that, that I often engage with. Um, but once the work is sold... The gallery has to pay the rent, so the gallery moves on to the next show and and the next artist, and often that work is never seen again. So how do these artists that I've collected, how does their work continue to be seen? How does it work its way into the cultural consciousness in Hong Kong, for lack of a better word? You know, um, in 10 years, some of these artists may not be practicing anymore. Some of them may have moved on to very different forms of art. But how is the legacy of what they've done still a part of the cultural consciousness of Hong Kong? We have arrived at the end of this dialogue. And my final question for you, Yuri, is if you were to have your last supper, which artist would you choose and why? Whoa. I have two pieces in the show by Grayson Perry. Um, He's a British artist, a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant at a certain point. An artist, a ceramicist, a printmaker, an embroiderer, a TV presenter, a professor. The first Art Basel that I went to, the first Art Basel, I think it was 2016, I, I, found, I saw this piece by Grayson Perry, a woodblock print called A Map of Days, which is, he considers it a self-portrait in, in concepts, and I was in awe of this piece. You know, this is an artist who puts himself out into the community, into the world, in, with zero reserve, in a 100% genuine complete way this is me this is every facet every aspect of me and and take it as you will i would love to sit down with grace and perry over a coffee a cup of tea a beer a, a slice of carrot cake what have you that that would be a fun supper Thank you, Yuri, for coming over to my studio on Lama Island and taking the time to talk with me about your group show. Thanks for uh, the opportunity, Oscar. This has been really fun. Thank you for listening to this episode with art collector Yuri van der Liest. That's it for this episode of The Last Supper. In order to continue to offer episodes for free, We will need your support and you can simply do this by following this podcast, by giving it a rating, leaving a comment or by sharing it. You can find more information on my Instagram at thelastsupper.asia and on my website www.oscarvenhuis.com. And before I go, if you have any further questions or suggestions, feel free to message me on oscar at oscarvenhuis.com. 
Of course, I will post all the links, references of my guest and my contact email in this podcast description as well. <laughs>